Hi everyone, it's Armin Morabian with Portofino Media. Today I'll be talking with Marty Kagan, the author of Inspired, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. Marty's first book of the same name had a huge influence on me when it came out 10 years ago because he stressed a point that although Agile has done great things for product delivery, it's not enough for discovering the products that customers are going to love. He's recently written a second edition of the book with more up-to-date examples and content. We'll discuss the importance of having the right culture to create the great products, the key role of the product manager on the product team, and what kind of team makes great products. He'll also share some insights on how to measure business results. Enjoy. My first question for you is, how did you get interested in this area? What, what motivated you to pursue this topic? Oh, probably the same thing that motivates lots of people is I was an engineer for a long time. And, um, you know, an engineer is just kind of the victim of whatever somebody in the product side decides is important to build. And, um, and I, uh, at some point I just decided that was, uh, enough of that. And I, wanted to get interested, you know, learn about how to define products as well as just build them. Mm. What, what are some of the ways that you measure? Like, how do you know you've created something that customers actually love? Technically, we have lots of ways that we measure uh, product market fit. It's, the, it's one of the main ways. And it, for every product is a little different, of course, but you're looking at some way of measuring whether or not you're really meeting the needs of a specific market uh, so that might be by engagement, might be by subscriptions, it might be by revenue. But there's some business objectives that we typically set. And uh, once we hit that, we'll declare victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you make clear in, in both your book and also the two-day seminar is it takes a great culture to build great products, the products that people love. Uh, I would argue that you might be able to create a successful, very successful product act as a early startup with basically any culture mm. good or bad but if you want to i would argue if you as you grow if you want to consistently produce strong products then you're going to need a culture that's conducive to that mm-hmm. and that's where the great product cultures uh, really come from and that's that's why i'm so uh, such an advocate for strong product culture mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned um, in the cl- the two day class that I attended, you really want missionaries, not mercenaries, and that's a quote from John uh, Doerr. Uh, and can you can you just explain what you mean by that? Well, sure. Basically, a mercenary. These are just the typical old style team that where the engineers will build what whatever they're told, designer will design whatever they're told. Even the product manager will uh, define requirements for whatever they're told. They're, they're basically just hired guns. Mm-hmm. And uh, missionaries are basically true believers. They are trying to solve a, a real problem, and they are committed to solving that problem. And they know it's going to be hard, and that's kind of – but they, they view it as something important for the world to do. And so they're motivated by, you know, really meeting a need or making the world a better place. They're not motivated just to show up at work at, you know, nine to five and and 
code or design yeah. and just build whatever. Yeah, in the tech culture today, um, do you think there's a lot of that, a lot of the mercenary type thinking? Well, there's always been a lot of mercenaries. Um, but in the good companies, they it really, you can tell in a minute that they're missionaries. Mm -hmm. It's easy to tell mm -hmm. because um, you can tell a missionary team in, a, in just seconds by talking to any of the members of the team, any developer, any designer. Like what, what's a typical, all in. What, what's a question that you think might uh, sort of, sort of tease that out uh, to be honest you don't have to tease it out it, mm. it's obvious um these are they are uh just because of everybody you talk to is completely enthusiastic about what they're trying to do mm. and they are um they know about the business context they've been talking to customers they're just genuinely excited about it mm -hmm. and that's something that's very hard to hide right. uh, and not that anybody would try to hide it it's just you know they wear it on their sleeve right would you say like energy level enthusiasm the type of questions the quality of conversations those kinds of things yep all that mm -hmm. those are all examples yeah and you know i think would you say this is different than say for instance in construction right where you know, the, the, the people that design buildings and architect, you know, large buildings and shopping malls, uh, and, and the construction crew, those are like different people. And it, it seems to me like in construction, um, or civil engineering, it, you could still have like the builders, you know, the people that actually pour the concrete, they don't necessarily need to be missionary minded uh whereas in tech products it seems to be more the case that you know that that really that the people building the product need to be true believers would you would you agree with that yeah i think it's more uh, you know building a house has been done a billion times in the world and uh it's more of a commodity activity mm. um and you know there are skills and trades you hire for that um I'm sure there are incredibly passionate architects and builders occasionally, but the uh, all I could say is in the tech world, we're solving well, almost all the problems are new and unique, and mm -hmm. we are solving hard problems. And in order to do that, it requires a significant commitment mm -hmm. and and effort. Yeah. Uh, and now if you have a company, let's just say I'm a, a, a young leader and I've taken over a company and I, and I get the feeling that most of the people here are kind of the mercenary oriented, um, whether they're contractors or employees, uh, you get to feel that, that they're, they're really mercenaries. Is there a way that I could transform that attitude? Is there, is there ways to, to change that or, or you'd, you'd have to rehire everybody? Well, in general, that's a big reason why we hate to, uh, you know, I can't stand it when I find a company that tries to tell me they're serious about product, but they're using contractors all over the place mm. um, <clears throat> for core competencies. I mean, using contractors for product design or engineering is not, uh, I mean, you, you're not going to have the level of, uh, you're certainly not going to have a missionary model mm. if they're literally mercenary. So that's an easy one if they're uh 
the more common activity is they are employees, but their way they're run, the way their company is organized and managed and their culture is not empowering teams. And that's a, that's more of the typical transformation that companies talk about. And some make that transformation and some don't. Uh, a lot of it depends on really two big things. They have to have the right skill level of their staff and the thing that's important to acknowledge is uh, missionaries require a high level, higher level of skill than a mercenary model. So you have to make sure you have people that are skilled enough to succeed. And leadership from the starting, usually from the CEO, they have to be uh, supportive and understand or motivated to actually make technology uh, kind of central to their business and and, cha- and be willing to really look at different ways of working and the practices of, of the better companies, the best companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And does it matter? Uh, like, let's just say I I just took over a company that produces farm equipment. Um, can I still be a great, can I still have a great technology culture within that company or does it need to be more of the leading edge video streaming and social media, that, that kind of thing? No, there's... In fact, uh, ag tech is a great area right now. I mm. just met with a really cool startup last week that's doing uh, very sophisticated technology. Yeah, these collars that go on cows, and it actually for dairy cows, and it actually um, is amazing the stuff it does. Turns out, ag agriculture has been um, farmers are pretty sophisticated. Mm when it comes to managing uh, their their business and their crops and their herds. and So anyway, it can be in any area. Mm-hmm. And so shifting gears to agile development, right, since this is kind of a big topic in the tech area, would you say the agile development paradigm uh, <clears throat> is helping produce a more innovative culture? So it depends. If when we talk about agile – uh, to me, it's a prerequisite that really every team is using some form of Agile for delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, where it gets a little tricky is, first of all, you have to realize that Agile is really all about delivery, and it's not about discovery. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you have to realize that's just a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Agile really does almost nothing for you about discovery. Mm-hmm. And then there are frameworks that people do on top of Agile, um, probably the most uh, notable one would be SAFE, Mm -hmm. which in my opinion just uh, dooms any chance of innovation. Mm -hmm. So that it it may be fine for an IT organization, but not a tech product organization. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Agile becomes more of a significant problem rather than a uh a help right so it's kind of is it like the golden hammer like you know it's good but then people try to use it as if it solves all their problems is, is it that kind of a oh that's a different issue mm-hmm. i would argue that mm-hmm. that's i mean you see that even with basic scrum mm-hmm. some teams try to use it for all kinds of goofy things and you know um that's just uh, the way people are sometimes is mm-hmm. yeah they, they use it for everything now, this, I think, is more misguided. Safe is more misguided. It's, uh, In fact, 
from my point of view, it's it's very close to the old way people used to work in Waterfall, mm-hmm. um, and it's got all the the real problems of that. So mm-hmm. it makes it makes IT organizations feel more comfortable because it's more familiar. But no, I I, I honestly don't know of a single uh, tech true tech product company that uses frameworks like that. Mm-hmm. Many of them use. Uh, uh, less formal frameworks like the way Spotify scales. Um, Agile itself, I think, is an is is a scalable model. It's just when people layer on these frameworks of, of bureaucracy and mm-hmm. and process that uh, causes real problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it, you know the the one of the things that uh, you mentioned is that uh, time if time to market is your main driver, uh, that may not be the right approach to creating great products well it's because it's nothing that doesn't say anything about whether or not you add value mm-hmm. and um, that's if you talk about real innovation consistently adding value for your customers in your business um, it's a lot more and it's a lot harder than delivering on time mm-hmm. so speaking of innovation the there, there seems to also be a lot of confusion about what is an MVP, a minimum viable product. What I mean, so I think the thing that throws people off is the viable product part. Can you speak to what you, what, what is your interpretation of an of a minimum viable product? Well, <clears throat> there are there. It's it's an ambiguous term to so many organizations. There's no question about it, and there are different valid definitions. The problem is. Um, it leads to a lot of confusion. I try to tell people just as long, the most important thing is the MVP should never be a product, it should be a prototype. Mm. And for, as such, prototypes are there in order to, for us to test several things, including viability. Viability is one of the big risks, um, but it, the even bigger risk, value is a big risk, usability is a big risk. Feasibility is a big risk, and then again, viability is a big risk. And so we are tr- trying to figure out a product that, that actually will somebody will buy and they can figure out how to use and we can build and that works for our business. That's what, that's what those four risks address. And prototypes are how we do that. So MVPs should be prototypes in the spirit of addressing those risks. And then products are something we can actually sell and support and let customers run their business on. Mm-hmm. And uh, now in the Agile community, we <clears throat> oftentimes people use the word product owner and product manager interchangeably. But these really aren't the same roles, or are they? There are some places that use them interchangeably and it's no problem. Mm. But in many cases, what happens is... Um, the, they take somebody and send them to a certified scrub product owner class, and then they think they're a product manager. Mm-hmm. And that's where the problems come. So normally, and I would argue this is really important, the product manager is the title of the person and the responsibilities of the person, and that includes the product owner responsibilities on, a, on an agile team. Mm-hmm. You get into trouble when you separate those responsibilities. If the product manager is not the product owner, that creates a whole different set of issues. And again, there are some frameworks that uh, uh, requ- that basically either require it or 
encourage it. Mm-hmm. And that's that just, again, leads back to the same waterfall model that they were coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in that situation, if you have, if you're going to scale um, and you've got, let's just say, 10 teams that are building one large product, uh, you would have a product manager then for uh, maybe like every team or maybe there's a one product manager for two teams. Is that how you would approach it and not separate the product manager from the product well, owner? Right. You wouldn't separate. And each mm-hmm. product team would have a product manager that plays the product owner role. Mm-hmm. And they would have, if it's user facing a designer, and they would have somewhere between about two and 12 engineers. And that's a product team. Mm-hmm. And you would, have, uh, you would have some director of product management that is really providing a holistic view of the product strategy and vision. You'd have a director of user experience design, which would have that holistic view of the design. And you'd have directors or VPs of engineering that have the big picture holistic view of the architecture and the engineering. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so I spoke with Jim Morris last week, uh, this person that you introduced me to as a discovery coach. Uh, So we had a good conversation. One of the things he said about product management is that, you know, he went to product management or working with product managers from engineering. And he said the first thing he noticed is that in engineering, you have this pretty well thought through and, and pretty mature discipline. And there's, you know, a lot of university courses on it and so forth. When you go into the product management, it's a lot more, it, it, it's, it seems to be a lot less structured. And it really depends on the product manager, how they're going to approach the way they do things. Why do you, you know, first of all, do you agree with that? And then second, um, why do you think it is that we don't have more formal education for product managers? Yeah, I think he, he's right for sure. Um, that's been a problem in our industry for a long time. Um, Universities have good programs for engineering and for design, but have never really had good programs for product management. Um, They actually do have good programs for product management in many business schools, but they're a different kind of product management. They're for non-technical products. Mm. They're for the classic... uh, Procter and Gamble style product management, mm. uh, consumer packaged goods, and that's not really relevant in our world. So, it's created this gap, uh, and it's been. And, and the other big thing is, uh, the other thing, honestly, I think that increasingly I'm seeing is a root of the problem is so many people came to the product role through product owner training, mm. and product owner training does not actually teach you to be a pro- product manager. Mm. It just teaches you about 5% of what it means to be a product manager. Mm -hmm. So the result is uh, people learn how to do it usually from their boss at a company. And if if they're at a good product company, they get great experience. And in a year or two, they're ready to to really be a very strong product person. But if not, um, then then that's the problem. So, mm. As far as strategies for product management, uh, one of the things that, that really was a takeaway for me from when I attended your class was, you know, you mentioned that um, a lot of companies, when they're trying to get into a field, uh, let's just say like, for instance, if I was going to get into the bookstore, uh, online bookstore business, the tendency seems to be, or, or the uh, intuition seems to be, hey, I've got to be at least, I've, I've got to get it in parity with what's out there first. 
and then I'll build my differentiator. Uh, and you were saying that that's actually a, a wrong, that's not the, the best strategy. First of all, this idea about parity, it would take, you know, you, you have a new company or a company that's doing a new product and they're trying to catch up to a product that may have been out there 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it could take for it take it could take many years just to get to parity. But uh, then the, the big learning that so many companies have is so they finally achieve parity. You're close enough and they still don't sell. And why is that? Because people don't want to switch. And so it has to be significantly better in order to switch, to get somebody to switch. And so that's where, um, that's where product is very often significantly better is not starting with, you know, 10 years worth of features, but actually starting with a much, uh, more, um, focused and well you could an example and i may have used this one is slack where slack came into a pretty crowded space actually and remarkably got many 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 companies almost all of their customers switched from other things and early slack actually and still even but didn't actually do all that many things they kind of decided there were three important things they were sharing and search and synchronizing and they said we're just going to do things, but we're going to do them way better than everybody else. And, uh, yeah, we're not going to try to be an email system. We're not going to try to be a chat system. We're going to be something uh, better. And that, I think, is a better example of, mm -hmm. um, of being smart about it and not pursuing feature parity. Mm -hmm. One of the big things, right, today is how do you measure business value created? Right. So this is kind of one of those topics that often comes up in conferences and people talk about, you know, do you do you measure business value delivered? You know, so, of course, there's this this older sort of PMI model of the earned value uh, uh, measured and usually earned value is a measure of output. Like how much did we create based on our original plan? And uh, but that that seems to go kind of contrary to the to the being able to measure outcomes uh, rather right. than the output. Uh, so if we're measuring outcomes rather than output, what are some good metrics for that? How do I actually measure business value delivered in your opinion? Well, it's, this is really what the OKR system is mm -hmm. for. Um, so objectives and key results and the objectives are different business objectives and there's a thousands of different business objectives there's no one uh and the idea is when you achieve those business objectives by definition you're creating business value because that's how they come up with the business objectives they're saying it's important for our business that we fix this problem we mm -hmm. we reduce the incidence of fraud or we reduce or we reduce the incidence of churn or we increase a uh, number of customers we have uh, that we can meet the needs of in this market. There's a million ways to define uh, value. And the idea is the senior leadership of a company defines what is important for the business. And product teams then measure themselves against their ability to deliver on that mm -hmm. that those that value. And that's um, OKR is not the only system to do it, but that's what it's for. Mm -hmm. It lets us measure our progress against creating 
value. Yeah, so John Doerr is coming out with a book. It's uh, going to be released in April, and it's all about OKRs. So I'm really, I pre-ordered it. I'm really excited about uh, learning more about it. Uh, now, as far as you know, is there a way to attach dollars to that or some number to that? Or is it kind of a binary, we met that or we didn't meet that objective? Well, no, many, many business objectives are financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be about growing revenue, which is dollars, right? Uh, or it might be about reducing costs, which are dollars. Uh, if the business objective is financial, then that's how we measure it. And we can put a dollar value on it. But not everything is uh, directly dollars. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're asked to focus on reducing churn rate, that is measured by by uh, the percentage of customers that don't resubscribe every year, and the reason, but that the reason that's important is because that does translate into uh, faster growing business. Mm-hmm. You know, Marty, I got to say that my big takeaway, and I'm kind of ashamed of this, <laughs> is that uh, I I realize that I often confuse output with outcome. You know, coming from an engineering background, um, so one of the examples you gave in the class of you know. Uh, if you actually achieve PayPal integration in the next release, is that an outcome or an output? I actually have to think about that uh, because so often in my career, that's seen as the outcome. And when I you know, kind of step back, it's like, no, actually, that's output. That doesn't actually mean that you, you actually achieve the true objective of you know, increasing you know, customer engagement or revenue or, or anything like that. Uh, do you, is, is that a common thing where people confuse those two items, the output and the outcome? Uh, yeah, but it's more not that they confuse it. It's just that when you're given a roadmap of output, then you think your job is to just implement the roadmap. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that most people even think about. Right. They just say, well, you know, our job was to implement but we did. And we did that. And it's, yeah. As opposed to saying, <laughs> uh, as opposed to saying, actually, what was our real job? Our real job was to increase conversion rate. And if the, did that actually do it? Maybe not. So mm. are we done? Probably not. Right. Yeah. You know, when I, when I've brought that up, um, to, to folks in, in the, in, in software development, actually both for the management team and the software development team, felt like that was not the engineer's job to to determine whether that is the true outcome or you know they basically felt like the management needs to realize whether whether that PayPal integration is the right thing to to do and then you know their job was to just implement that yeah well you're describing the mercenary model mm-hmm. very well mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, normally, of course, there's another person in the mix in a modern product team, which is a product manager. And um, <clears throat> so it's not that you throw on the engineers to figure this out. You expect the product manager to ensure that the team understands what their actual outcome is and that it's the right outcome. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in a good company, um, in a good company, when we talk about an empowered product team, this is what it means. They're given a business objective to go figure out how to solve it. It doesn't mean they're given a roadmap and they're told just go build it. Yeah. And 
so it it really though stems from I mean that attitude is probably it has to be really supported by leadership, right? The leadership, the CEO, the 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 you know the chief product officer. These folks have to embrace that empowerment model. That's why we were saying before the two things are you have to have strong staff mm-hmm. that's capable of this, and you have to have leadership that really uh, uh, wants to work this way. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Marty, what is uh, the next project that you're working on? My main work is uh, advisory work for uh, a bunch of companies, and so that's my that's my normal work. Project. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing one book after the next. <laughs> okay. Is there another class that's coming up that people should know about? Well, I as long as nobody, as long as we still have this problem in this industry of uh, people not sharing best practices in product. I've been trying, I'll, I'll keep offering them. So, and I always have uh, public courses I try to fit in and I put them on the website, svpg.com. That's mm-hmm. where you can find all the latest ones. Yeah, we'll definitely link that up in the in the podcast. Marty, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your class. It was a total game changer for me. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Well, no problem. My right. pleasure. Well, have a great week, Marty. You too. Thank you. Bye now. And that was Marty Kagan, the author of Inspire, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to all the topics we discussed today. And please leave us a comment and tell us what you thought of today's show. Thanks for listening.